Hello and welcome to Straight Reads, a monthly book podcast where we read uh, one book a month. And that's basically it, that's the premise. We have no genre restrictions and our only promise to you is uh, you'll have one episode a month. It's a very loose schedule. We, I don't think, have a set day of the month to release our episodes, but no, it's gonna be a surprise unless, um, you know, you kind of look on our Twitter account and notice when we post about uh, receiving questions, which you will hopefully do if you read along with us. Um, but if not, it's, it's gonna be uh, hopefully a happy surprise for you. Uh, with me today is uh, my co-host, Sol. Hi, everyone. Um, doing well. Excited to uh, get into the, the book um, and excited yeah. to start uh, talking about this one. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a pretty juicy one. <laughs> um, also with us is our guest uh, for the, his second consecutive uh, episode, G. Hello. Defying Empire, it turned out, was fun. <laughs> it sure was. Um, I think it's worth noting, by the way, this is the first episode we record while knowing we have a name and knowing we are an actual podcast. I think uh, when we recorded the first one, we weren't even sure if we were going to release it as a podcast. But, you know, it was so much fun. I, I think uh, we're really happy with it and decided to kind of turn it into an official thing. Um, so now we have a name, we have cover art, we have a Twitter account, uh, which I believe is Straight Reads Pod. Um, so yeah, definitely go follow us if that's something you kind of do. Um, and we also have an email, so you can email straightreadspodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. It doesn't necessarily have to be about the book we're reading, I don't think. If you have any general questions about like the books we like or you'd like some recommendations, I think uh, we would be happy to hear those as well. Um, so before we get into the meat of things, I would like to talk about what you've all been reading, uh, not including the book we are talking about today. Have you read anything beyond that? It, Obviously, it's okay to say no. <laughs> I, I don't think we prepared this beforehand. Uh, but Sold, have you read anything? Uh, so mainly just this book. This this book I really kind of just dived into and lived in for a while. Um, so I don't have anything really else to uh, to share other than you know what we're going to dig into it a little bit later because um, this really just uh, completely consumed me. Yeah, it is a long one to be fair. I read a lot. And even then, this one kind of took at least half of my month. Uh, and that also included me traveling uh, for like a week. So it really cut into my reading time. Um, gee, how about you? Have you read anything lately? Um, I read the Chicago Manual of Style for work. Um, there's... Which is... Oh, what? Yeah, what, what is the Chicago Manual of Style? Is that a... Um, it's a style guide for uh, research papers, uh, for academic writing, for formal writing. Um, I mean, uh, I, I read it like I read it occasionally. Uh, I mean, I read it periodically, but uh, it was time for a refresher. Sort uh, of brush up. <laughs> yeah, a brush up. It's 
um, and I also read like the it's college equivalent, like because this one is for post doc post grad, um, and I read it's college and high school equivalent, which is called a manual for writers of research papers, theses, and dissertation. So huh, that well, those, <laughs> that's interesting. Those, those are that because that this book Babel, I don't think it's been introduced, but. Yeah, I, I read it. In, it was unputdownable for me um, when when it was given, when we picked it. Um, yeah, I just picked it up and read it in two days. Like, I couldn't stop. Two days? Wow. Yeah, like, no, like all my leisure time was spent <laughs> reading this book. So I couldn't put it down. Like I was reading in the dark with a light, with a book light. It's, it's crazy. Huh, that, that's, well, uh, pretty uh, amazing, honestly. It's a really long book to read in two days. Um, I'll, I'll share what I've been reading. Um, so I have kind of an ongoing project, uh, kind of personal project, to go through all of uh, Tomihiko Morimi's works, uh, who's, I think, better known for being the author of the book um, for which the Tatami Galaxy adaptation was made, uh, Tatami Galaxy being a pretty kind of popular anime. Um, and then he also wrote uh, the original book of uh, Penguin Highway, which is a recent, uh, which recently got adapted into a movie as well. Um, so I, I've been curious about the books. Actually, very few of them are translated. Um, there's about four, I think, uh, the most recent of which is Tatami Galaxy, which is kind of surprising because it's kind of a well-known anime, but it didn't get a translation until I think earlier this year or, you know, very late last year. Um, and then recently I found out there's a kind of fan translation group translating the uh, previous works that do not have like a, an official English publisher. Um, so my project grew but I'm happy because uh, you know I've already gotten through two of his books one of which is kind of uh, proto Tatami Galaxy in the sense that yeah. it reads very much like uh, Tatami Galaxy but it's kind of weaker um, Tatami Galaxy is this very kind of silly uh, look into college life and um, its main character kind of goes through a t kind of time loop where he tries out different clubs to join during his uh, college days. So and then, to... through, through that experience, he kind of realizes that there is no right choice and he would eventually end up making the same choices even uh, though he kept blaming his original choices for his, miser uh, for his misery. Um, the f the first one, the first book, the kind of proto Tatami Galaxies, mm -hmm. kind of more focused on the romance aspect, uh, and that's not as interesting to me, especially because um, the the character is kind of a uh, stalker. He's stalking his ex girlfriend, and I think oh, that's really no. icky. And I was not a fan. Yeah, uh, that he is crossed a the line bit. into being. <laughs> uncomfortable. He crossed the line into being a yeah an outright this. Uh, dislikable, uh, uncomfortable character for me. So not enjoyed that one as much, but I did read the official translation of Tatami Galaxy this month, and it was good. I uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, I 
having I was I just finished um, the body in the library, which I think is uh, Miss Marple's second book uh, by Agatha Christie. Um, I enjoyed the first one much more. <laughs> um, this one comes like years after the the first one in terms of real world time. Uh, Christie wrote it way later, mm-hmm. um, so I think it shows uh, for worse <laughs> because uh, and the, the first one kind of had a more fun tone and it wasn't as concerned uh, in like showcasing Miss Marple as the main character. Um, the first one's really funny because she shows up for like. 20% of the book, but ends up being like one of the most important characters, and that's how she kind of stumbled upon the character. It's not like she originally planned to build a mm-hmm. new series with Miss Marple, and that was a lot of fun to read through. Like, seeing the author kind of realize she had something in her hands. Um, oh, yeah. Which is confirmed in, in interviews, I think. But the second one, where she kind of makes her the star, not as good. Uh, and it also has some icky subjects uh especially for like her writing which is notably like xenophobic and, and racist <laughs> at times this yeah. one has like grooming of minors and some horrible disability portrayal um so yeah no, not a fan of this one sadly uh but you know it, that's how it goes <laughs> with books gotta sort of read on hopefully the the next two are a little bit uh better for you yeah, absolutely. Um, right now I'm reading the second book in the um, Ratch trilogy, which is, I think it's called Ancillary Sword. I think Ancillary Sword is the second one, and then Ancillary Mercy is the third one. Um, and that one's fun. I, I was in the middle of the first book when we recorded our first episode. Oh yeah, I remember um, that. You mentioned you were enjoying yeah. that. And I liked how it ended, and I'm really liking this one because it's kind of a change in tone and scope to be way more like personal like the stakes are not like galaxy wide Mm. Uh, they're still going on in the background uh, but the characters like focusing on very personal issues and like the conflict is way more contained Um, and i'm appreciating that that change of pace it very much feels like the middle book in a trilogy uh, but for for better in this case, a little bit more of like an intimate story you're finding. Yeah, yeah. He, um, rather the the main character kind of gets sent to a station which has been like isolated, uh, because as part of the finale of the first book, um, the gates through which the chips travel have been destroyed or are malfunctioning, so they're kind of trapped. Um, so it's not like this uh, far-flung adventure where they're traveling from planet to planet uh, and along uh, periods of time are being like uh, jumped between. This is just like a week maybe of story that's, um, you know, it's giving the book a lot more space to breathe mm-hmm. and like stay with the characters, uh, which is something I appreciate. I, I'm really enjoying the, uh, you know, the the smaller scope and kind of more relaxed pace. So it doesn't seem to go into the sophomore slump. I mean, it bypasses the sophomore slump by going in, in a different direction. 
I'm, is what I'm hearing. Hmm. Yeah, that, that that might be the case. Um, but let's get into our book, um, which for this month is uh, Babel or the Necessity of, Viol of Violence, an Arcane History, uh, which is a really long. It's actually an arcane history of the Oxford Translators Revolution, which is a really, really long title. Um, I'm, I've actually seen it named like uh, with different names. Sometimes it's shortened to Babel or the Necessity of Violence. Uh, sometimes it's shortened to Babel and Arcane History. Um, and I wonder if that's like a publisher's trick to kind of not have to, uh, you know, make ads for a book uh, with a it's such a long title, uh, but officially it kind of reads like something you would find in a you know, scholarship paper. Yeah, definitely a long, flowing title. Uh, what were you going to say, G? Oh, yeah, it's like a monograph title. like a... Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, this book is written by uh, R.F. Kuang or Rebecca F. Kuang, who's a Chinese-American uh, writer. And he's mostly known for uh, The Poppy War, which was her first novel. Uh, and is followed by some sequels. Um, I think it's a trilogy in total. I have not read anything uh, by her, um, but I have heard a lot about The Poppy War. I probably should at some point, especially after reading this one, which you know really, I think, made a positive impression on all of us. Uh, I read... Uh... I swear, I thought Poppy War was part of our club, but I guess I read it independently. Uh, I read it like when it came out, um, and after I read after I read Babel, I thought I I, I was really excited about her, uh, her and her writing and where and how she'd grown. So I, so mm. I was excited to revisit Poppy War because I hadn't read. Because when I read Poppy, where there were no second or third books, but uh, I, I wasn't able, I didn't have enough time to get into rereading the first book and go, continuing with the trilogy. So maybe that's something well, uh, we can do. Yeah, fair. Um, yeah, this was released the Poppy War. I mean, back in 2018, so it hasn't really been that long. Like she's been pretty consistent about releasing books yeah, she's uh, on the schedule, like yearly. <laughs> because uh, The Puppy War releases in 2018, the two sequels are 2019 and 2020, and then Babel releases in 2022, like late 2022, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, August 23. Um, which, yeah, yeah, she has a book it's... coming out in like a month. She has a new book coming out in like a month. Called How Yellow Face. Huh. Is it related to Babel? Uh, I don't think so. Oh, no, 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 no. It's, not. it's called Yellow Face. I think it's semi-autobiographical, or maybe she's pulling from experience. But it's about a uh, Asian American author whose story is taken by a white writer and published as their own. So uh, don't quote me on that. I oh, think that's cool. what I read. Interesting. Um, yeah. 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 So evidently, very prolific. Um, yeah. And this being written in like the space of like two year ish is kind of quite a feat because it this is a big book. Uh, even though I was reading a digital copy, so I didn't actually have the book in hand, I did visit one bookstore uh, on my 
on a, on a recent uh, trip and I did see the actual book and it is quite a tome. Um, but yeah, uh, so Babel is a, I would say, alternate history first, fantasy second uh, book. Mm. Would you all agree? Yeah, I would definitely yeah, I would. agree with that. Yeah, this, this is an alternate reality, kind of 1830s. Um, it's also been called kind of a love letter to Oxford University because it's, and there's even in the foreword, mm. like this section about reproducing the kind of geography and locations uh, around and within Oxford as faithfully as possible. And uh, she actually even like says, um, these are the concessions I made. Mm. This is where I placed uh, buildings that do not exist. I kind of, I think she retroactively like places a pub she liked uh, mm, yeah. in the immediacy of Oxford, just so she could uh, like use it as a set for the characters, which I think is really interesting. Uh, what do you guys think about like the sense of place that she achieved through, uh, you know, basing the location in locations that she was actually in? Well, I definitely like felt when I was reading the novel, I definitely, even though I've never personally been to Oxford, I could feel definitely that sense of, of nostalgia. Um, I think she did a, a really good job of sort of uh, creating a lot of those intimate moments that really um, like fleshed, fleshed out all of Oxford and just made it feel like, you know, a place you would want to belong to. Um, and, you know, that was one of the things that sort of jumped out at me as I was reading, um, just sort of that striking image and how much this one setting uh, really, you know, changed our, our characters. Yeah, and most of the novel really takes place uh, within Oxford and, you know, its uh, immediate surroundings. So uh, you can really tell, I think, at least, um, how many of the descriptions of places and the locations through which the characters like walk uh, and interact within kind of read like they're being described from someone's like mind eye because that's where they have been personally and I think that really works in in a book like this one uh, it kind of reminds me of I, I know there are authors who even though they use fictional uh, locations they still like do the maps like uh, Le Guin, which we talked about last episode, where she mm -hmm. kind of made the effort to draw a map for the Earthsea archipelago and uh, all of the islands and everything. I think that really helps later on when, you know, being able to, like, plan out uh, how long a conversation is going to be based on the distance between A and B uh, or when they're going to stumble across another character, uh and things like that, and it makes them feel really, uh, you know, like lived in and actually existing, um, which I, I think comes in handy. And uh, in this case, it's really convenient because Oxford already exists and the, the, the author actually kind of uses the already existing layout of the place. Yeah, um, I've never been to Oxford either, but I know what it's like to love a campus uh to feel like you belong there and i i mean i read uh i think she wrote in the afterward that she spent a year in 
Oxford writing this book. And this is apart from when she, I think she took her master's here or her, yeah, I think she took her master's here. And yeah, I think, I think the, I think a love for a place is important if you're going to subvert it in the way that how this book eventually does because you understand it from the inside yeah absolutely um so i think i i'm going to go through the plot kind of broad strokes mm. and then if anyone wants to chime in uh you know just cut <laughs> cut me um so we basically start in canton uh quite a distance away from oxford where uh, an orphan is kind of very close to death in a like they're living in squalor and i think most of their family if not all of their family uh like is laying dead uh and they're just waiting to die when suddenly this english professor uh who in my mind's eye at the time seemed very uh kind of archetypical um good nature professor heroic uh, <laughs> Yeah, comes in and performs some sort of magic on them and heals them instantly and then immediately picks him up and leads him to a boat uh, where he informs them that, uh, first of all, they need a name uh, because their uh, you know actual native name is not going to be good in London uh, because no one wants to make the effort to pronounce him and it's going to make him sound like exotic and that's going to work against him um so the orphan ends up adopting i don't think we actually ever learn what his actual name is um but he does end up adopting the name robin swift um so robin we learn has kind of been groomed for a long time because someone lived in the same house as he did uh, that was kind of an assistant to this professor and they kept educating him in English and giving him stories and um, you know preparing him for this day and this is where he actually finds out I- I'm not sure if this is where he finds out uh, that there's something very wrong because uh, he kind of figures that the professor was kind of like idling uh by waiting for like the rest of his family to die off so he could come and save him Uh, like he could have uh rushed to the island and uh or rather to to the the house and saved his mother but he he really didn't he kind of was just only interested in him yeah sort of took his took his time is what it seemed like um i did just want to just talk a little bit about um like the robin swift identity um, yeah. It really seemed like um, that was sort of the start of the overall theme um, of translation because he's, you know, he's basically translating himself for like, you know, the sensibilities of like London society. And in almost in a way, he's kind of like othering himself, you know, having to, to let go of who he was and shedding that sense of, of person. And I think, you know, because of that throughout the novel, you're really seeing, you know, Robin, you know, struggle with that loss of self, that loss of home, because he is, you know, sort of pulled into this, you know, entirely other identity so early on. Absolutely. Yeah. And we later learned that this was like the professor's version of being generous to him and like 
giving him a childhood uh, with his with his culture and alongside his peers. So that, that becomes like an extra dimension of cruelty later on. Uh, what were you going to say, Jay? That act of othering himself was already rooted from uh, the professor's uh, hidden upbringing of him because his names came from the books that the professor had been secretly sending him throughout his whole life. And that's where he picked up English uh, as the as the nanny uh, taught him a conversational English, but he'd learned uh, more formal, more written English from the books. So, yeah, yeah, it was that act of translation that Saul was talking about. Like he was literally imprinting on himself. So mm -hmm. even this early on, the legacy of his of the professor. Did I just slip a bit there? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's pretty obvious like uh from like the second yeah, chapter we suspect that, it pretty early on for sure yeah, yeah that this professor whose name is richard is actually his father uh, i think someone actually like lets it slip at some point mm. uh that they look really similar um well they're at the, like on a house visit uh because the professor takes like visits uh social gatherings and such oh yeah the, um, the person who says that says that robin looks more like the professor than the other one <laughs> <laughs> yes a very very kind of loaded uh there. <laughs> so he is brought to london where he gets kind of like a very good treatment um he lives with the professor and his assistant uh the assistant is a very good cook um he kind of doesn't seem to like go out of the house much uh but he has enough books to last him a lifetime he's uh again groomed to join uh babel which is kind of a research institution within oxford um so he has very strict uh kind of study schedules and things like that and uh one of our first big events is um i think at some point he's allowed to buy his own book and uh he kind of becomes God. enthralled in it and uh forgets about like he he's in his room and forgets uh that he had a class scheduled uh so he he kind of lets an hour go by uh which prompts the professor to very brutally uh assault him basically mm. uh, to yeah he he kind of humiliates him uh he he really lays it on him uh for for being late uh threatens him to like bringing him back to canton to live in poverty and misery and then that kind of uh, traumatizes robin enough to like excel in his studies um and and continue on uh to to a uh, make it into Vavel eventually. Yeah, he really, the professor really stresses in that scene just how much of an asset, you know, Robin is and, you know, just, you know, how, you know, he doesn't even, you know, see him, you know, as a, as a person, you know, as an individual, yeah. just sort of what he can, you know, do for the professor and the professor's, you know, own ego. Um, definitely very, very chilling scene that sort of just happens like out of nowhere. 
Yeah, I, I appreciate the way it is written because it feels like Robin kind of disassociates in this moment. Uh, it it goes through his mind that the professor is incapable of doing this because of his experience with him, that he kind of uh, sees himself from from like another perspective. And you can tell how traumatizing it is, uh, especially because like the, the wall comes crashing down and he realizes that for from the professor's perspective his might as well be like an investment uh, right he's a tool of the professor's trade um a, a conduit towards like further research and further fame and the development of babel uh, yeah. as we will later learn and and it's something that will be reinforced um like so yeah it's it's yeah before before this point like you're you're suspicious of the professor and the setup, but there isn't there is no and or his intentions, but it's there's an unease around the house around his tutoring, like what is the purpose of all of this, and you have this yeah. little moment of connection where the professor buys him like buys him the book, and he goes to his room and reads the book, he, like there yeah he's he's enjoying it so much like, uh, Quang here captures like how great it is to be uh, absorbed in a good book and then it's like violently interrupted by this uh physical abuse where like everything comes into clarity yeah absolutely um so he excels in his studies um because he's had uh, literally the fear uh of uh, going back to to Canton to live in the squalor, like drilled into him, and makes it into Babel. Um, so we get a fairly long introduction of like his first days in Babel. He meets uh, Rami, who's uh, a, another student who's in a very similar situation, and this makes it, I think, at least for me, kind of even uh, ickier. You know, the fact that. Uh, there's several people like <laughs> that are proxy investments from professors, like mm -hmm. trying to, yeah. uh, you know, increase their uh, capability for research uh, because they keep bringing in like people capable of thinking in and speaking in uh, exotic what they would think of as exotic languages. Well, I think. Well, I was just gonna say I think they mentioned slightly later on, not to jump too far ahead, that. Um, with the way things are working, um, they're doing this sort of as a way to these students that they're, you know, bringing in, um, they're sort of making a forward investment, um, in these languages, um, yeah. to keep, uh, to keep the, the system in check as we soon learn. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so he, he develops a friendship with Rami, which I think feel, comes across as very genuine. I think those initial days with just the two of them, uh, I really enjoy the like the scenes that we get. And I, I think he's allowed to bring down his like the, his, his defense uh, a little and be a little vulnerable with him. Have and you seen the fan art? It's actually very cute. I have not seen the fan art. I should have seen the fan art. You should have seen the fan art. <laughs> I, I was be... wondering about that. I was wondering if that was... 
because there was one scene there where he's just sort of looking at him and I'm like oh is this where this is going and then we really don't mm-hmm. get any any more of that and I was like well I don't know I, I think I was I would be down to see the fan art because I was definitely <laughs> thinking the same lines yeah I, I absolutely think they could have gone there uh, for sure they have like uh, like kindred longing spirits. gazes and <laughs> They're, they're kindred spirits for sure. In the sunset. Um, they, they have a really good... Yes. yes. They're very good friends. <laughs> um, but I think uh, their, you know, blooming bromance gets interrupted by the introduction of more characters who kind of get uh, integrated into the friend group, uh, namely Victor from IT and uh, Letty who's a white British admiral's daughter, kind of like the odd one out in terms of um, origin stories. She's Thank kind God. of like the... The token white lady. Well, I, I, I was sort of thinking about Letty, and I, she's sort of the mm-hmm. outsider of the outsiders because she doesn't quite yeah. fit in with, you know, the other three, but she's still an outsider. She's still, you know, not the typical student. I think she yeah. comes across a little as a klutz, uh, right? And like the naive one of the group. And she kind of looks to them as her friends, obviously, in uh, like being othered and being apart from the rest of the population within the university. Because we see how, for example, both Letty and Victor um, get like ostracized for being girls and they have to like try to not let that show so they are accepted into places uh without much questioning and such um so she definitely develops like that affinity uh but it's never the same kind of otherness right and it's never the Mm. same kind of rejection as the others uh so she's like permanently uh naively outside of them as well Mm -hmm. um which is a little bit of a tragedy yeah because as much as she'd like to learn about well i don't know does she ever really become an ally i'm not sure she doesn't i don't think she does at all and that's why i think she kind of opts for being a kind of naive klutz uh when when push comes to shove, and I'm not even talking about like the big plot twist later on, mm. but every time they get confronted or, or something, she's kind she's kind of a coward. Um, mm. She never stands out stands up for them. Um, she never kind of joins them in a way that's meaningful. She's just kind of there as like a shoulder to lean on, but never like someone speaking up or mm. interested in like understanding why these things are happening yeah um yeah it feels very performative (laughs) and you know she doesn't seem like the type of person to like want to rock the boat like she doesn't she doesn't she's not really looking to make like big sweeping changes you know even though obviously uh you know these things are you know society and in general these things are affecting her friend she's comfortable and i think you know, that is one of sort of the themes of the novel, sort of that self-preservation, you know, how much do you, how much change do you really want to make, you know, when you Mm -hmm. yourself are sort of making it, you yourself are sort of surviving, um, you know, even though other people around you might not be doing as well. Um, And I think she's sort of in that position where, you know, 
even though you know she she wasn't born a man um you know and she she's not able to i guess live up to her her father's expectations she's still in a lot better position than you know mm-hmm. a lot of the other uh characters around her particularly her her friends um and i think she doesn't want to upset that comfort that she has you know doesn't want to make those changes yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think she comes across as genuine, but uh, also a coward and also very unwilling to rock the boat, as you put it. Um, so no matter how much she wishes that there was like a just a peaceful solution to things or just, you know, uh, keep on with this status quo of being like the quiet ones. Um, the easy way. Not right like going with the flow uh is kind of her deal uh, so she's she never really makes uh an effort to learn how things would be, could go different or how how things could be improved she she already thinks she's got it like so much better than so many other people that she doesn't consider uh that others might not think like that yeah what are what are her do you do either of you recall what her languages are i don't not off the top of my head right no i do not because well we haven't talked about the fantasy aspect of this book yet yeah that's actually what i was going into because uh a few days after like the group gets uh introduced and they all get their like bonding scenes um they have their first visit to uh, babel which is uh a big a multi-story t- uh, tower in the middle of Oxford, which is, I think, magically bigger on the inside than it looks from uh, on the outside. Um, and we get our first like real gl- glimpse into our magic system or, or the fantasy aspect that gets introduced in this book. Um, G, would you care to explain what that is? All right. Um throughout this book before this whole time um, they've been alluding to how silver functions how silver is integral to how this world functions how its technology has progressed um, which would be analogous to our own industrial revolution Um, uh, throughout all the technological artifacts there is embedded a bar of silver where words are engraved and these words are engraved in at least one uh, in at least two languages and what gives so for example um uh, robin knows both english and uh, mandarin and there would be a word in mandarin and a word in english that would and it is the hold up sorry it's like the uh like right. the semantic gap yeah, between yeah. The... I, I was i was bringing up the exact quote the core principle underlying silver working is untranslatability when we say a word or phrase is untranslatable we mean that it lacks a precise equivalent in another language even if its meaning can be partially captured in several words or senses something is still lost something that falls into the semantic gaps which are of course created by cultural differences in lived experience so i'm uh for anyone who has who has experience with uh, bilinguality or more, um, you know that like there, uh, the act of translation is not one to one. You have to 
capture a spirit and it's this spirit that powers the silver like that intangible ether i guess between between thoughts in different cultures yeah it's a really interesting concept uh, right because basically what you're doing is engraving the silver with two or more words and then the kind of again like gap uh which includes like the culture and history of mm. where these languages came from uh act upon the silver to like imbue it with some intention or power or uh you know just ability to improve things somehow and there's a little bit of hand waving involved here uh because like there there is so much i think um that that exists between two words in that way uh that actually putting them into work like uh i don't know improving the capacity of a uh light bulb or uh making uh what was it like chips go faster and always have the wind behind them and things like that uh sound really specific for things that are so undefinable um but i i think it's a really clever and interesting uh kind of magic system and we get enough uh, terminology and like enough technicalities on it to come across as an actual like study like field of study uh for the yeah. scholars at uh oxford to like work on um but we never really get like a sheet of rules or anything um it's it's very hand wavy at times i'm interested in like uh so sorry do you speak other languages apart from english so i um i did do like my undergraduate did have to mm. um you know, learn a second language for that. So um, I picked Japanese. Um, mm. I want to say I am really rusty right now. So right. please don't please don't quiz me on it. But yeah, I definitely, no, no. Um, as I was reading this book, I, you know, I, sort of confession time. When I started this book, I really didn't think I would relate to it. I really didn't think yeah. I would find much in it. But the further I got into it, it just kept invoking in me this like very visceral reaction. Um, so, you know, when I was, you know, really active, you know, doing all my Japanese studies, there was mm. a time I actually did want to, uh, like, work in translation. So a lot of the things, like, this book yeah. describes, you know, are ways you sort of have to start thinking about words and trying to communicate. Because um, I did do, like, a, a study abroad um, for almost a year. Um, and, you know, in that time when you're trying to just communicate, you know, with people, mm. you know, you just sort of have to really break down words and really uh, find other ways to to make that communication happen. Um, and one of the things I really like about the book, you know, um, that the magic system really, I think, reflects sort of um, our, our cohorts, you know, our main characters own journey of of their duality and in, in, in finding their their place um you know where they belong I, I think the duality of the actual magic system with those paired words really uh complements that nicely yeah I, I was wondering like what what would what what someone who doesn't like wasn't raised in in, in a different language other than english 
uh, who was raised in native like anyway sorry i can't phrase it properly but i because i've been thinking about i think about translation a lot because i've done it at work i my, my my work is with people who for whom english is their second language and i have to think about their idioms because sometimes they they transliterate their idioms into english which of course doesn't work and 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 i think about it as well um uh in other work for filipinos um like because we have this whole body of literature that because i have english-speaking friends obviously um um and like i try to capture like a poem like a filipino poem or a filipino song and i i try to show them what it's what it's saying and it's extremely challenging but that's part of the it's part of the appeal of it i suppose um i i i brought i i found their languages the languages that they have so uh um oh yeah go ahead yeah because here in this magic system the more languages you know the better and the further apart from hegemony which is i think a word we'll be talking about a lot maybe um the more powerful they are because we haven't mentioned this but um oxford the seat of the british empire the seat of the translation power of the british empire which drives its industrial power and therefore its imperial power um because the languages closer to english have been i guess the well has run dry it, uh yeah, there, there's like diminishing returns as yeah. they use the words um, because they, which is an actual thing, I believe, where things get flattened like semantically as, you know, the, the more, contact with other cultures yeah. kind of, yeah, um, the more cultural shared. exchange. Like sort of over... The more they're loan words. Over translating it almost to the point where it's just those bars aren't yeah like anymore. old words that had more meanings or like cultural significance attached to them kind of get merged in the mm. cultural conscience with uh, you know English words so yeah. that semantic gap begins to like close itself yeah. um, so by the time uh, that the book takes place like many of the silver work that relied on like uh, European languages mm. to work are not as effective uh, because the gaps have started to close. So these characters are investments for the, for these professors because they come from uh, kind of exotic backgrounds with new languages that haven't been nearly as exploited uh, because there was no one that could like do the work. First of all, do the work to um, come up with a pair of words that would do something useful and then uh, because you have to like know enough of the language to think using that language to in, like put the uh, silver bars to work um, haven't been available so they they you know Rami and uh, Robin uh, and uh, Victor at least have been brought here to like be the people who are going to like come up with new word pairs and uh, also be able to like invoke them and maintain them 
because they do need to be like the the spells have to be like constantly recasted for them to work yeah i was just gonna talk about i was just gonna name what languages they bring to the table um yeah. from the point of view of the empire at least um rami has urdu arabic and persian um victoire has french and creole which some people don't think are separate languages but they are um robin has uh chinese which in this case i think is mandarin because his uh, Cantonese mm -hmm. is rusty uh, because uh, Professor Lovell, his father, does not know Cantonese, um, and they um, and Letty has French and German. So in our discussion earlier about how Letty is othered because of her oh, privilege, um, even here, like her utility to empire is diminished because her languages are not as exotic as the others. Right. And all of them know Latin, I think. Mm. Latin, Greek, all of all of them. It's a requirement to get into. Mm -hmm. And those are like the least, the most, wrong dry languages because how English takes its the roots of English. Yeah. Um. So, within Babel, there's like this is a tower and it has different floors and each floor has kind of a department. Uh, one of them is like research. One of them kind of takes care of maintaining uh, the bars that are out there in the wild and they get like contracted to go out and like fix them. Making those house calls. Yeah, basically. And that's where part of their like income comes from. Um, they're mostly like state funded, right? Because they again are kind of driving the uh, power behind the imperial prowess of uh, the British Empire. Um, and the such uh, are like very pampered as, as a scholar institution, even though they don't like they don't think of themselves that way. Like they think they're uh, or, or rather publicize themselves as being like uh, towards the, uh, you know, good of, of the people and the empire. Uh, but in the end, it's all like military contracts, uh, right? That's yeah. where all of their uh, influence comes from. I guess like JPL or something. Yeah, and it's something that is very obvious to the to the like higher ups, as we will see, including uh, Robin's father. So I I think very shortly after this event, where they actually start, um, you know, visiting the tower and such, um, Robin stumbles upon a robbery attempt inside the yeah. tower. He kind of goes back to retrieve. I think he was retrieving a book or something. And uh, that's when he finds out or, or stumbles upon a group of basically burglars who have tripped an alarm. And um, they're trying to make their escape by invoking the words on a silver bar, but it's not working. Uh, and it's actually an, I think, English and Mandarin uh, pair. So Robin kind of very intuitively and uh, spontaneously uh, activates it for them, uh, which allows them to escape. And he recognizes that one of them looks mysteriously uh, <laughs> like an older version of himself. His doppelganger. Yeah, he, he goes as far as saying that, is this my doppelganger? I, I think he for a second actually questions his sanity. Unlike us, we have probably connected um, this character with what the other 
the visitor had let slip like earlier in the book uh where they revealed kind of like the existence of a previous robin like a, a previous iteration of what the robin experiment is it's literally what i have in my notes for that like the previous like experiment you know right the the translation that didn't work out that failed the failed asset exactly yeah yeah, you absolutely know the professor has like an in-progress paper he's writing about the Robin project, right? Like, <laughs> this is how successful it is to bring exotic students into Oxford and like grooming them to be tools uh, for Babel and, you know, exploiting those those languages. Like literally seeding these exotic women in the, and, and taking their, oh my God, this is... This is so it, many real-world parallels. It starts to get really <laughs> dark when you start to really like look further and further. Yeah, I, I think this is it's really well orchestrated um, by the author uh, for all to like reflect itself. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you have a section way... of personal thoughts, but I, I, yeah, I'll leave that for later. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... As we would expect, uh, this turns out to be Griffin, uh, Robin's elder half-brother, who's uh, another son of Professor Lovell, um, who kind of uh, faked his death. Uh, and yeah. I think the, the professor actually, as we will later know, learn, uh, doesn't believe he's dead. Uh, they just kind of go along with the mm -hmm. story. Uh, but he explains that there's a kind of uh, parallel society of ex-students, mostly, uh, who have either, like, uh, escaped or faked their own death uh, and are kind of part of a rebel, rebel group, uh, which is called... Uh, what is it called? It's the... The Hermes Society. The Hermes Society, thank you. Um, yeah, so Robin knows uh, or learns about the existence of this society and kind of is inducted uh, into it because his brother is able to like uh, expound some anti-colonialist rhetoric at him <laughs> and Robin kind of realizes, um, I, I think, largely what he already suspected. Uh, he's, he's not as naive to like uh, be surprised by what... Um, Griffin is telling him, but you know, I think the existence of an alternate group kind of convinces him to like start making an effort towards um, taking action, uh, even though it is very kind of subdued and he's of two minds uh, throughout the beginning part of the book um, and his experiences with Hermes, especially because he's like kept in the dark about many things and he's kind of like the errand boy uh, for a bit. Um, he does have access to Babel, uh, because Babel has some protections that the burglars have uh, tripped uh, on, on the previous uh, scene that I uh, described. Um, so him having that access allows the burglars to, and, and the Hermes Society to like uh, sneak in and start um, stealing bars and uh, writings and things that would allow them to like continue their um scholarly endeavors because that's also something they're doing it's also kind of a research center and uh fund like their efforts uh on colonial 
uh, kind of a revolutionary. Locations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, in my notes, I describe them like as the the Robin Hoods of uh, silver. They're definitely have a fairly lofty goals for for making change, um, as we'll sort of see the progress throughout the novel. Yeah. Yeah, and we see Robin like being constantly torn between, um, you know, having to accept that what the Hermes Society does and Griffin's points are mostly correct, um, or rather completely correct. Uh, but at the same time, he's like being pulled from the other direction because he's being enticed by the possibility of like becoming uh higher up at babel and going on like adventures where he's going to be like mostly in a diplomat position or be a kind of inventor of these bars and like have total access to this uh technology and magic and that's really um you know enticing for him like yeah and this is the letty uh, problem right like this is the same problem yeah. that letty has because like Letty Robin has proximity to privilege. Like he, he is white passing. Um, he, he, like later on, it's revealed that Rami, like Rami and Victor, are part of. When Robin has crisis of conscience and stops working for Herbie's, it's revealed that right, his friends Victor and Rami have, who are brown and black, uh, do not have like they don't have this conflict because that option is never available to them. The option of rising up and level, like, like reaping the benefits of empire of whiteness is, is never available to them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like they are not as naive as uh, Robin, like Robin kind of wants to uh, lie to himself and convince himself that there is a life for him that uh, is, him being other than than an asset or, or an investment and him like going past that status uh and becoming something akin to like like professors and, and higher ups but um he's he's kind of fooling himself yeah there's a there's a scene later on in the book where he he says to a white person that he says to a white person who thinks that he's white he says to them that he's a chinaman and then the person the white person says looks at him closely and says, no, you're not. There's no way. Mm. So yeah. So um, basically they kind of go about their business. Um, we know Robin's kind of working again as like an errand boy uh, slash burglar for the Hermes Society. Um, at some point it kind of comes to a to a breaking point where he breaks contact uh, with Griffin and, and the Hermes Society and kind of uh, decides to like shut his eyes to to the reality of things. Uh, this is when he gets uh, shot, right? Yeah, I think he gets hurt by one yes. of uh, Playfair's traps, the traps, and then he, after that, he just feels completely isolated and abandoned. Um, right, he gets shot and yeah. he stitches himself up. Uh huh. Griffin doesn't have like the best uh, brotherly relationship with uh, Robin, um, and he's not the best with words either. Like he's way too into his revolutionary like concerns to to worry about developing a familiar relationship with yeah. with his brother. 
Um, so when when Robin actually gets the chance to confront uh, Griffin, he's like very uh, nonplussed by the the concerns and uh, you know reacts badly, and and they kind of come to to a break at that point. Um, then I I think it's shortly after that they are uh, like called to go on a trip to Canton to act as translators. There is a conflict um, between the the like British Empire and the current leadership in China, which I think is the Qing Dynasty, um, because of opium. Uh, because basically the British wants to be able to export opium into China without any regulations, uh, like screw people over in the name of again like imperialism and uh, the free market, right? Um, and and the king uh, kind of recognized um, how how dangerous opium was and how much damage it had already done to the country, so they are kind of instituting a blockade um, so that no opium can come into the country. They have like a lot of ships stuck with cargo um, at the ports waiting to either be like released or uh, see what's going to happen. And they're bringing them over uh, in order to like help with the negotiations. Yeah, I just wanted to um, go back just a little bit before that. Um, I think just oh. right <laughs> before they leave is when um, you know, Robin finds out that both Rami and uh, Victor are part of the Hermes Society um, and uh, chooses oh, yeah. to uh, cover for them, like, right before they, they leave on this, this journey. Um, and he's sort of given an ultimatum um, by the professor, you know, either it's, you know, us, you know, here at Babel, or it's it's the Hermes Society. You can't have both. Um, and I think it's at that time that he finds out about Evie, or I think they had um, some suspicions about uh, Evie, who was like a, a past student uh, that was very prolific um, with the type of uh, pairs and uh, silver working she was able to do. But the professor reveals at that time that Griffin actually uh, killed her. Yes, yes, actually, that's very important. I totally, totally slipped my mind when that what uh, would happen. Um, yeah, uh, Robin stumbles upon his two friends, uh, kind of in a very similar position to how he found uh, Griffin in the like near to the beginning of the book. Um, they're like trapped in a web, I think. Uh, that's like the latest trap that they have laid for um, burglars at the at the tower, and he kind of is able to free them, uh, but not like quickly enough for him to also escape. So he takes the blame for it, um, and the is confronted by his father, who quickly like realizes what's going on that this is the Hermes Society because he's not as clueless as you know he pretends to be. Um, he he kind of lets him know that he knows uh, that Griffin is like going around doing all of these things, and again, kind of as you said, gives him an ultimatum. Um, yeah. Right, um, and tied into the scene is of how Evie dies is this yes. particular bar of silver. Uh, we haven't talked bar. much about how uh, silver working is weaponized, but here, uh, here's a very concrete example. There's a word here for, a Chinese word here, um, 
that means fire, and next to it is a character for violence, cruelty, and turbulence. And it can also be translated into untamed savage brutality. And these same uh, radicals, uh, parts of the character, parts of the Chinese character, they also are used in the Chinese words for thunder and cruelty. And then when paired with the English word burst, um, if used against a person, if activated when placed on a person or put put um, in a pocket or something, then they will explode. Violently. Yeah, it, very violently. <laughs> there, uh, the, the author here doesn't pull any punches in, in their description of how this works. Yeah. Um, and he actually has the bar that uh, he's been carrying around, like the professor, as kind of, uh, you know, he says it's it's kind of as a tribute to, to Evie, who got uh, killed by a similar uh, bar. Or is it the exact same bar? It, it isn't. It's the exact right? same bar. I think it's is the it exact the same? same bar. Okay. Um, so it's, Robin it's reusable. Even... Even. Yeah, Robin even sort of makes the comment or thinks the comment, you know, just of how, like, violent the actual bar feels. Like, he can just hmm. feel the difference, like, the weight um, and sort of almost like the, I think, the pulsing of, like, the, the magic, like, inside of it, like, ready to, you know, act again. Um, but I think this is, like, the first time, like, um, throughout the book that it makes sort of makes note of a slightly different, like, feeling of like I guess silver bar some all of the others um I don't think have like this 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 weight or sort of raw energy the way I sort of pictured it was like something went wrong with this bar or maybe like the way things were translated they couldn't quite make that jump so there's like a bunch of like energy still like trapped in the the bar instead of like sort of flowing from like pair to pair that you would normally see that's sort of how I envisioned it but yeah, yeah. I, I think the to some degree the bars kind of uh, embody the uh, meaning of the words, and you know the, these words are imbued with like so much violence and uh, like explosiveness that the bar kind of embodies that as well. Uh, there's actually a another bar that gets mentioned yeah, I was gonna, earlier on. <laughs> I was gonna, uh, gonna about yeah, that's kind of a very funny like meta detail, which is if you try to like. Is it translation yeah. uh, that they try to engrave into the bar? Yes. Um, yeah. So if you if you like try to get a semantic gap between different versions of the word translation, it kind of becomes incredibly volatile and like uh, messes up a whole room in the in the tower. So that's like a well known uh, do not do rule. It's <laughs> like the one do rule. Not try to. Yeah. Yeah. Don't translate. <laughs> like, translate. When, like I was already like bought into the book like from the very first page like, yeah from the very first page like and even more so when they explain how the magic system works but when here when later on like a many like five or five chapters after they explain the magic system they talk about this no no word translation I was like totally bought in because this is a contradiction I've had like, <laughs> it's a contradiction I've had with other people like previously multiple times like like the word for translation in my language like roughly in filipino and tagalog um it translates to english as like 
um, as the act of pouring water from one vessel to another. So that's literally like, and that's oh. one. That's like one word. That's what we use for translation. So, yeah, it's, it's something that, like the, like how, how culture works, how lived experiences inform, mm -hmm. what, how inform how they inform words, and especially the act of translation, which, as evidenced by the magic system in this book, is like that. Yeah, really untouchable sense and even here it's untouchable because you can't use it like well like, yeah <laughs> we'll see that it's it'll become like more like a like more like a nuke a new version of the grenade the grenade bar that killed evie yeah yeah basically um so this bar that killed evie actually ends up in the hands of robin because mm -hmm. the professor decides to give it to him um <laughs> as a threat to Robin, what's going to happen which is <laughs> the, the dumb yeah like, dumbest like, yes give your son who hates you a loaded grenade like a, a sleeping grenade uh-huh yep um so they they are called to uh visit china uh in this like commercial uh dispute that's uh, you know as much commercial as it is about like uh being able to continue the british oppression on the chinese mm -hmm. um so um here robin gets the chance to like visit uh canton for the first time since he was taken and i think it's kind of a really like heartfelt uh moment where he is accompanied by i think by rami uh into what was his old house um and he is like able to see how china has changed uh and, and this area specifically has changed uh since he was taken uh, basically kidnapped by the professor. Yeah, his, old, his old house is gone. Right? Yeah, I think it, it is gone. Yeah, replaced, by, replaced by an opium den. I think it was yeah. markets there, and then he has makes a decision to to visit the opium den okay. after. Yeah, I think it's as they are walking back that he kind of spots an opium den and goes inside, and he takes it in anger, right? Let's see, Let's see I what... think. I feel like when I was reading this, I've got the sense that Robin was just very lost because he's going home to a home that isn't mm. home. He doesn't right. feel yeah. really like he's, you know, he just had this big incident, you know, at Babel. So, you know, he's not really sure where his future is with that. He just knows he mm. can't screw up again. So I just, I feel like this was like a very like self-destructive act just to to make a decision that was like his decision mm. you know that wasn't someone else pushing their agenda or mm. anything like that this was something that he chose to do and yeah he kind of does it to ground himself yeah and i think um yeah i think i would agree with that sort of that um, yeah tried to see if it would give him clarity i'm not sure if it necessarily worked mm -hmm. but um I, th I think that was sort of the intention there. Yeah. Um, so the, the following day, I think he goes with a British official to meet with a Canton official. Um, and th it goes terribly wrong. <laughs> like, um, we, we later learned that this was kind of an excuse to begin a conflict. <laughs> so it's not like yeah. they actually expected to have like a diplomatic 
make a genuine diplomatic effort to find a compromise or anything, uh, but it goes really ridiculously bad. Um, they definitely like, didn't send their best man, like Bayless. No. He's only been in, like, a few chapters at this point, and just, like, over the top. Just He was the, the one that didn't... Um, that G brought up earlier that didn't believe Robin was, you know, uh, from Canton. Um, just incredibly racist, doesn't consider the, you know, the Chinese people, you know, it's uh-huh. worth his time, seems very put out having to even be there and having to lower himself to these negotiations. So you can kind of just sense there was no way this was ever, ever going to go well. Yeah, uh, the person they send in, I think, is just, like, only concerned with moving in the product because he's, like, the, the owner of the, like, export company. So they they it's a very thinly veiled, like, effort to, to spark a conflict. Um, and then Robin kind of pours oil into the fire by uh, having a private meeting afterwards with just the king officials yeah. and being, like, very... Also transparent about the British intentions and um, his opinion of them. Like he's by this point, I think entirely bought in uh, on like the revolutionary mindset, mm-hmm. and uh, he, you know, he he's compelled uh, to like confide in the king officials at this point, um, and they basically take the decision to burn all of the opium that was being withheld like at the border or at the port um and the fire like sets off um all of the like the british uh into a frenzy uh seeing just all of the opium being burned like uh however many pounds uh going up into like thin air um and this seems like a, like a b- really bad place to be in uh right now yeah, because um, the opium is well, the, the the motivation for the opium, apart from its psychological effects, physical effects, the economic effects of opium is because uh, the the economic driver of sending opium to China is because China has there's an imbalance between Chinese exports and imports. Um, China is enriching itself. Mm-hmm. On its exports to the the British to the British Empire, and for an empire that's unconscionable, they cannot be the ones being exploited. So they um, they introduce opium, which is produced in another of their empires, India, into China, so that the economic so that they will also economically profit from China, apart from all the other ways they are already profiting from China in the form of professor level and. Uh, Robin, and yeah, this 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 meeting between Robin and the commissioner, Commissioner Lin, the envoy of the emperor, the representative of the emperor, like yeah, he he asks Robin straight up, like, is there any point to negotiating with these? He uses the word for foreigner in Chinese that is offensive. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess it's uh, and yeah, Robin says. No, and yeah, they burn, they burn the opium, they burn all of the, all of the British leverage in Canton. Yeah, um, the professor kind of, and uh, again, uh, 
accuses Robin of being like <laughs> complicit in the king's uh, move. Like the um, catalyst, yeah. Yeah, the, as they are like running away, uh, because again, like there's this huge fire right by the like enclosed location where the British uh, have uh, like I think the shipyard situated themselves. Yeah, it, it's basically a shipyard. And, like, the adjacent area where there's, like, a small, like, British colony where uh, the officials live uh, and such. Uh, but they, like, get quickly uh, rugged into the uh, boat back again. Um, and they take off. And this is when um, the professor confronts uh, Robin, accusing him, uh, again, for his supposed complicity uh in the in in this move and him being a driver for uh you know the the fortune in opium being burned uh and this is when robin kind of does not back down and uses the same bar that the professor gave him earlier on the professor uh leaving a bloody mess <laughs> on on the floor of of the professor's cabin basically um and uh evidently killing him uh, I cheered. <laughs> I did too. I was relieved, but also very worried when I realized this was like chapter 18 and I'm like, we've got a lot of books still to go, but um, uh-huh. I needed this to happen. I was, I was done with the, I was done with the, the professor. So I, I cheered as well. Yeah. This, this is where the book kind of goes into overdrive. Uh, I feel because the pace up, till this point has been kind of like laid back um very like mundane like going on reflecting uh, almost maybe you would say robin's own sort of laid backness or not willing yeah. to take uh, action and then he sort of kicks off the the pacing here with this one action yeah the tension goes like sky high as um his friends like coming to the cabin uh, right after they hear an explosion of some sort and find the cabin pretty much covered in blood and uh, pieces of professor. Um, so they kind of try to come up with a plan and uh, their plan is ridiculous, which I love, uh, which is to pretend that the professor is that's sick. COVID. Uh, yeah, that's COVID. Yeah, throughout the entire trip. That's the vibe. Like, <laughs> and it was like, yeah. I think on the way there, they were on a faster ship. Um, so it was like six weeks, but this one is going to take even longer. So it's like they've got to keep up the act for like an absurd amount of time while still having uh-huh. like all the the tension with uh, with Letty, who at, at this point doesn't doesn't really know anything about where all this animosity, you know, like with the Army <laughs> Society, all of that's going on. So there's like a a bunch of. Uh, balls they're they're juggling at once here in terms of trying to keep up this this charade that everything's fine everything's normal yeah there's already a lot of tension between them because uh after like robin took the fall for them um they kind of do not trust uh each other uh because of themselves not telling between each other that they were part of the Herbert society um so they're not in the best of terms at the moment, and then they are like forced to cover up a murder together. Um, they throw the professor's body or what was left of it over the board, um, and then like 
just clean the cabin and resolve to pretend the professor is sick uh, and use that as an excuse to make people you know not not have to visit him uh, for the entire direction of the of the trip back into England. And I would say for the most part, it, you know, it, it works, you know, while they're on the ship, just because, you know, no one on the ship really seems to, to care too much about them, except that, uh, I guess, kind of nosy uh, missionary <laughs> who just kept wanting to uh, share life advice with them. Hmm. Yeah, like the crew from the get go are like annoyed because uh, their schedule got all like screwed up because of having to like escape uh, from Canton after the burning of the opium. Uh, so they're already like in a bad mood. Uh, they don't want to have anything to do with the kids uh, or the professor. So, you know, like the, the they have uh, a kind of good scenario to get away with uh, the murder, but it's also kind of ridiculous to uh, convince everyone on a ship for several weeks that the professor is just sick and that's why he hasn't like come down to eat or, or anything for like weeks on end um but it, it does work uh so good for them um they they arrive at uh london back uh and they basically they first go to the professor's uh i think it's like oxford house i think it's his other one um the yeah, one the house where robin yeah, that that before going yeah. is it the same one he grew up in yeah. before going to Badal? yeah it, okay yeah it's that one um, that I think only occasionally the professor uses it's like his I don't know summer house his spare house maybe just mm-hmm. where he wants to store all these random wards he's collecting right um, they're they're taken in by like the person who's in charge of the house um, I think a neighbor because the housekeeper is in Oxford right. Oh, yeah, they're given the, yeah, they're let in by a neighbor. Yeah, so the neighbor sort of, he happens, Robin happens to remember who the neighbor is, who's sort of looking at them kind of suspiciously, because, you know, why are, you know, this group of, you know, mostly not white, you know, (laughs) people sort of loitering around this, this, you know, very well-to-do house and, you know, She's sort of peering out her front window, but he he happens to remember her actually um, in a letter from the housekeeper. So he's able to sort of smooth things over, you know, by name dropping her, um, the housekeeper, uh, Mrs. Piper. And that in turn puts the neighbor at ease and makes makes her feel like they, they sort of belong a little bit more in this really upper class neighborhood. So she gives them the key to, to go in and, you know, while they're there, they... Uh, sort of plan what next to do because they really at that point kind of realize they're sort of stuck they don't have any real life skills or a way to get another job or a way to you know do anything else like they're really you know they realize then that they're completely tied to to babble and the whole system like they you know at this point have been not having to worry about rent, not having to worry about, you know, their next meal, not having to worry about anything. And, you know, they just realize it's pretty much all gone if they decide to make a run for it. So they sort of reluctantly realize that, you know, Babel is really the only place they can go, you know, for better or worse, because they can't really exist anywhere else. 
Yeah, this is also where they find like the evidence that this trip was kind of a sham and what they were looking for was just a pretext for war, uh, for pushing a war between the British Empire and China so they could just outright steal all of the resources and everything without having to like go through diplomatic channels or anything. Um, which is kind of funny that the they planned for the talks to go bad but not so bad that the uh the, the officials would burn all of the opium so it, it kind of backfired in a sense um because they were already planning for like uh you know the the talks to not succeed uh which i i find that kind of interesting uh they they weren't counting on the the chinese being so bold as to like emphasize their point in in such a way well they probably because... never considered that you know the Chinese would defy them in such a way, you know, yeah. they think of themselves as so su superior to be perfectly honest. Yeah, absolutely. But I think here we can have a little historical interlude, uh, talking about how empire, like white empires don't consider their, uh, their colonies, um, human. Okay. Um, all right. So I'm from the Philippines. We talked about this last week. We're, we have been colonized three times. Um, um, everything you may or may not know about how American empire works, like in how, like we talk about this on a forum that we are or were used to be a part of, how, you know, the America, how America, how Vietnam, how America handled Vietnam, how America handles uh, changes, uh, regime changes in South America. Um, but the original um, colonial project of the, of, the, uh, of the United States was the Philippines. And I'm just going to read um, an excerpt from a letter written to the president of the, of the United States before uh, they decided to colonize the Philippines in the middle of the Filipinos' um, revolution against the Spanish. Uh, which, you know, tracks with the, the Americans' uh, modus operandi of inserting themselves in the middle of regime changes. Okay, so the Declaration of Independence applies only to people capable of self-government. How dare any man prostitute this expression of the very elect of self-governing peoples to a race of Malay children of barbarism, schooled in Spanish methods and ideas? And you, who say the Declaration applies to all men, how dare you deny its application to the American Indian? And if you deny it to the Indian at home, how dare you grant it to the Malay abroad? That's the end of that excerpt. That's all I wanted to say from Salzburg. Huh. Wow, I appreciate that is That is fascinating. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. I hadn't heard that uh, letter before. So who's the recipient of this letter? Uh, the president, uh, President William McKinley, the president of the United, of the United States, when... Yeah, when they were preparing to, uh, when they were deciding on, in uh, on invading the Philippines uh, and taking the Philippines from Spain. Right. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. That. Uh, That's if you want really... more quotes, I have some more <laughs> from the president himself. Okay. The president, President William McKinley, went to a Methodist delegation when they were considering, you know, when the sen when the Congress was deciding on whether to, whether to invade. All right. Uh, he has a list, but I'm just going to name two items. And he was talking about God. 
Okay, uh... I walk the floor of the White House, of the White House night after night until midnight. And I am not ashamed to tell you, gentlemen, that I went down on my knees and prayed Almighty God for light and guidance more than one night. And one night, late, it came to me this way. I don't know how it was, but it came. Well, I'm just, I'm just going to say the whole list because it's short. That we could not give them back to Spain. That would be cowardly and dishonorable. That we could not turn them over to France and Germany, our commercial rivals in the Orient. That would be bad business and discreditable. discreditable. Item three. That we could not leave them to themselves. They were unfit for self-government. And they would soon have anarchy and misrule over there, worse than Spain's was. And four. That there was nothing left for us to do to take them all and to educate the Filipinos and uplift and civilize and Christianize them and by God's grace do the very best we could by them as our fellow men for whom Christ also died. Uh, and this was on November 21st, 1899. Jesus. Yeah, that's like vile, some vile stuff. And that's, yeah, way, way more recent in, in time than, yeah, that's, that's terrible. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, so, I really appreciate you sharing that for sure. Cause so this this book really like really hit home. Yeah, hit home. Yeah, I definitely think um, uh, the parallels um, the author she's conveying in the, this book um, about uh, you know are similar to what you were sharing there. Definitely um, them feeling like they're they're superior and in the right um in terms of the open trading and then ultimately you know their plan is to uh be able to invade so they can steal all of the silver yeah i i think it's pretty evident by now that like the alt history element kind of serves and i, I i'm probably going to talk more about this later but like serves two purposes here like first of all it allows like a very convenient metaphor for like all of the resources and exploitation that went mm. on during the like colonial project mm -hmm. in order to support the uh, like industrial revolution that mostly benefited uh, the British Empire as like the center of mm. such enterprises. Yeah. Uh, yes, and like it it's also like very clever because as we've already discussed it like helps mirror many of the like personal situations that our main characters find themselves into and what their life situation is like ingrained within the like magic system and the way silver works itself and then later on as we're about to see like it's a kind of ideal uh, conduit for like the end of the book to develop on a, a an example of what a revolution would look like uh, it's kind of very convenient because uh, the the most of silver working goes on in a single very centralized <laughs> location and there's like a very fragile uh, center of power that can mm. be like held by a small group which might not be the case when we're talking about like um, financial yeah. assets and instruments and resources that are really literally distributed through the entire like colonial project in a way that isn't as easily um taken um but i i really admire the like fantasy elements because it's just like a pinch of fantasy that full like serves so many purposes within the book it's it's kind of really impressive like i i cannot yeah, imagine so how elegant. much effort went into yeah it's it's very elegant it's like 
custom tailored exactly tuned to like serve as the metaphor for so many things reflect on itself uh so much about the book it's it's really it's really cool but mostly this reads like a history book and the uh author is not afraid to like pull quotes from actual um theory books and like anti-colonial books there's a fanon quote from wretched of the earth um which i actually read recently uh as a chapter header so yeah like the the author clearly has read their theory and <laughs> isn't afraid to like uh pull from that bag uh to to like uh, color the the going ons in this book yeah, she's definitely showing showing her work, showing her research, um, and in doing so, you know, creating um, this very lived-in world that has uh, a duality or almost a parallel to ours, you know. But like you were saying, sort of almost that pinch of uh, of magic to you know, I think really make the metaphor uh, even stronger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because. Um, because the language because the magic here is language and that's not something you need to really explain like as you would in other magic systems in other books like words themselves are are already magic of themselves because by speaking words by, by writing words you bring something into the world your ideas and this is something that we talked about in Earthsea like the, the power of names and even in like something like uh, like law, you know, like putting something in in legislation makes it makes it so. Um, and like the language, the magic system here brings you even more meaning when you yourself have engaged in this act of translation, whether you know, whether casually like, as a someone who knows more than one language, or professionally. Like it's, I mean, this is more. Um, uh, this is more of that elegance that I, that we were talking about, but there was something else I was going to say, but, um, uh, you were going to say something too, um, Serge. Yeah. I, I was just going to mention, um, I also really like that it is words and language that gets like utilized as a resource here. Um, because I think it would be too easy to like use, I don't know, spices, <laughs> right. Or, mm. or something like that. Some colonial oh, like mm -hmm. material export Gee. as a resource for magic uh, but it is words and and i think it kind of leaves no question this is like another purpose of of the book itself uh about how something as immaterial or something that would be seemingly immaterial and like infinite uh as language also can be like uh, taken and co-opted and mm. like absorbed into mm. manipulated and the, yeah weaponized yeah exactly um and it is not because like language is actually magical or you can engrave steel bars with it like the book makes it very clear how through like translation and how um cultural experts and scholarly like politics and and people being <laughs> like selectively uh taken into education uh that supports whose ideology supports like the colonial project um are 
like also a source of like a threat from from empire it's not just because they're taking our gold or our uh plants or our spices it's not like necessarily like material things uh, and the book illustrates that really well um but we we went off on a little bit of a tangent. <laughs> we should yeah, probably finish the the plot for Yeah, before we before we go to this in next next like yeah, it's, I'll try to bridge. Um, yeah, we're talking about how here in this book, Babel is a centralized location for everything, for all the resources of the empire, for its imports and exports, the way it uh, takes and gives. Uh, but it's also <laughs> Yeah, but silver working language is also the means of production, and we'll see how that centralization uh, comes apart in this coming chapter. But there was, and you were talking about a chapter headings, like quotes from real, um, mm -hmm. uh, real sources earlier. There was something that I highlighted. Um, it's in chapter eleven, and it reads. But slaves we are, and labor in another man's plantation. We dress the vineyard, but the wine is the owner's. And this is, uh, when I read this, I was reminded of uh, something I, a song in the Filipino. Um, I'm not going to reveal affiliations I may or may not have with uh, workers and farmers groups so that my government doesn't dox me and make me disappear. But there's a song that goes, um, we are the, that I'm trans I translated this. Uh, from Tagalog. We are the ones who planted ground and boiled the rice, but upon cooking, someone else ate it. So uh, I think that's something that is relevant to the conflict that we'll talk about. Yeah, and you know, throughout like colonial projects, like the experiences are so like uniform, like there's really no like creativity involved it's just <laughs> like plain plain extraction and exploitation mm -hmm. in a way that's like a it becomes a universal like yeah. experience for so many people uh and that that that's like part of again like developing the consciousness that is needed for revolutionary thought and revolutionary action um but continuing with with the book um they again find that the whole trip was a ploy to um incite war um in the like parliament um they do decide to go back to um to oxford and try to make contact with hermes who they see as possibly their own their like their only future where they could like continue working with uh silver and make an impact on the world um and so they go back they kind of pretend that the is it that the uh, professor kind of disembarked with them and went to his house? And yeah, kind of they is there. They kind of pretend like he went on ahead. Uh, one thing before, not just jump back a little bit, but while they were looking at the plans, um, you know, Letty finally finds out about the the secret, um, and then there's like a scene where they're trying to explain their their rationale of uh, you know choosing to join the the Hermes Society, and you can just sort of see in like the way she sort of described she agrees to help them but uh there's sort of this really uncomfortable scene where she breaks down she's the one crying she's the one that needs to be comforting about mm -hmm. hearing about their pain um 
and that really stuck with me that particular scene um you know before they they decide to uh ultimately head back to to oxford and see if they can gather more evidence to to give to the hermes society yeah her idea is to come clean basically <laughs> that's what she's like pushing for uh while they're like planning to contact the hermes society yeah and they... um so <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, and, they, and she's just not really getting the idea, like, they can't do that. Like, them doing that is, like, a death sentence, whereas, you know, yeah. she's likely going to make it out uh, on the other side of that kind of confession. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, it, it's very easy to, like, for her to imagine them all being, like, uh, pardoned for, for what they did. Um even if, like, she tries to smooth it out. Uh, but they try to make it clear to her that that's not the case at all. Um, so they, they do go back to Oxford, where they do pretend that the professor is back at the house, uh, kind of. Uh, you know, and, and they have not heard from him since, like, disembarking from the boat. Um, I think they are very close to being discovered at a party, um, when they get approached by one of uh, their professors who reveals that um, he's actually with Hermes and is going to get them out like right now because they're coming to get them. Uh, because I think by this point everyone has realized uh, the professors are not at home um, and they are probably, uh, you know, partially responsible for what happened both in China and uh, whatever happened to the professor. So I... I... I took that event slightly differently. I thought it was um, the professor, uh, I believe it was Play, Playfair. Um, I believe he was pretending um, to be part of the Hermes Society. He was like bluffing. Um, and then Robin makes something up. Like he makes up a lie. Oh yeah, I'm meeting, you know, so-and-so here. Um, and, you know, of course realizes through talking um, with uh, Playfair that Playfair's Playfair's lying and is is completely suspicious of them at the the party, and I think that's when they, all four decide to, just make a run for it because they don't have any other other options because they know their cover's blown. Oh, that's right, that's right. You're absolutely correct. Um, so is it they stumble upon someone or is someone? Yeah, like they stumble Anth upon uh, yeah, Anthony. Following them. Yeah, we didn't mention I think Anthony. Yeah, we before, haven't mentioned him before. But he, yeah, he was. Um, sort of a prestigious member of the the Tower of Babel, um, sort of showed them around, kind of, you know, took took them in. Um, and he was actually um, classmates or a similar kind of like cohort um, as our main characters are with um, Evie, Griffin, and Sterling, who we've sort of met on and off. Um, but he sort of earlier in the novel was presumed to be dead after... Uh, traveling abroad um even though some of the characters had doubts about that um but it turned out instead he like griffin faked his own uh disappearance to be able to uh join the the hermes society and work with them like full-time like underground yeah, yeah. Um, as i was reading it i found it really funny uh come again he used to be enslaved yes mm, yeah that's that's correct. I, I was going to say, uh, I find it really funny that, like, at least from my perspective, as I was reading, like, there was, like, a space of 30 minutes between Griffin revealing that 
students who are faking their death to like work on Hermes and Anthony uh, being announced to be like disappeared. So I was like, oh, I wonder what could have happened to him. Well, there was I also was expecting this like from the get go. Yeah, there was also a moment we had earlier on where Robin, I think, visited a shop and saw someone who might have looked like Anthony. So we kind of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> figured he was like floating out there. So it wasn't sort of a, a, a huge shock, um, especially yeah. since it seems like seemed like him and um, him and Griffin had some like unfinished business. And uh, so we kind of was like, as I was reading, kind of expecting him to sort of pop back up. So, yeah, when he... if anything, uh, Robin not piecing it together is the surprising bit. Um, yeah, so. They are taken in by uh, Hermes. They are led to this like old building within the campus um, that has kind of like a veil, a magical veil that's Glamour. also uh, yeah created by a bar, um, where they are effectively like um, it's kind of a one-way mirror for sounds, mm -hmm. so they can like talk about their research and projects uh, without being like discovered by others inside the campus. And it's kind of a building that's been you know, left. Uh, so, so it's not uh, a place where much people like pay attention to. Um, shortly afterwards, they're kind of planning their next move uh, because they are going to like go to parliament and they start working on a, basically a, a like an ad campaign pamphlets <laughs> like <yeah>. pamphlets yeah <laughs> um so they develop this bar that is able to like spread pamphlets and they're hoping to like sway the uh popular opinion uh against the war um with the evidence that they've uh collected which they've also brought with them i think um and they're like planning this uh griffin is against this uh from the get-go because he's very much uh he has a violent revolution uh, mindset mm. and is not convinced that this is going to like actually have any effect. So he is, he like takes off to blow up some like uh, warehouses or something a shipyard, um, I think. that he had already planned. It, it is a shipyard. Yeah. Um, so he's off. And while he's off, um, Letty, uh, just casually mentions that she's going to go oh, work outside. I got such <laughs> a sinking feeling in my stomach. Like I kind of knew it was like the shoe was going to drop with Letty, but I was like, please just let me be wrong. Please guys, come on. Like you, you like can't just let her cover. wander off. This, I, um, I, I think it's, it's even funny how easily she like just sleeps out. Yeah. Um, no one questions her. Yeah. There's even a scene like shortly before this where a guy is saying like we can we cannot trust any British subject. Yeah. Um, but Letty's there, so Letty's okay. Letty's an exception. Um, just being completely fooled by Letty, who's like throughout this whole scene like visibly nervous um, crying not convinced at all panicking of the plan. like just full yes. meltdown and i'm just like yeah yeah like i uh she's like trembling when yeah. she says she wants she's just going to go get some air um how they they allow her to do this uh beyond my comprehension i think <laughs> like, this is the point uh, of the book that's incredible stretched. mistake 
Like this is the only point of the book that stretched belief for me, like disbelief. Yes, <laughs> absolutely, um, completely agreed. So she comes back uh, with the police who raids uh, the Hermes headquarters, um, basically burns it to the ground, including the um, evidence they had collected on the professor, and um, kills pretty much a... everyone. <laughs> Yeah, everyone just dies. Um, I don't think a single member escapes. Um, and in a very like heart-wrenching scene, oh. uh, she shows up with a gun. Uh, her attitude is has cold. taken like a turn. Yeah, she's like this. The admiral's cold, daughter. Cold-blooded, yes, uh, cold-blooded. Uh, just demanding them to surrender. They're trying to reason with her. Uh, they they get like scared at obviously the, the sight of her with a gun, um, and she ends up shooting Rami and fatally wounding him. Um, and she does she like drop the gun and run away? Uh, I think what happens is like they make the 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 note like she purposely aims for him. Um, and then um, Robin and Victor are, are over overwhelmed um, by the the rest of the the police that are there and seized. Hmm. I don't think yeah, she runs so... away at that point. I think that's later on. Okay. Um, so they they are captured by by the police and uh, the. Ultimate fate of Rami is kind of left up in the air, but there's really no, no discussion about what happened. Like there's some hopeful thinking from Robin about him making it out, but uh, you know, I, I think he knows deep inside uh, that he's just gone. Um, he wakes up in a cell uh, where I'm. I don't remember who it is that's questioning him, uh, but they basically, yeah. So the. Oh, Sterling. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about the cell. It was just super creepy because they have like a bar of silver like embedded in the cell that like whispers uh -huh. like bad things to you to like mentally it's torture. It's like the thoughts. Yeah. The thoughts of previous prisoners. Yeah, something like that. Sort of trapped like within the bar to get you to to uh, like succumb to any kind of uh, torture or questioning yeah. later. Super creepy. Yeah, this this gets really brutal. Um, as he gets tortured with yet another bar that like inflicts uh, just endless pain uh, upon whoever it acts upon, um, he's told that I think it might be uh, Vitor who's like on the mm -hmm. on the room supposedly next to him, um, like also not collaborating, and he hears a gunshot and and thinks. They might have killed her. Um, and still, I, I don't think he talks. Um, but he's just numbed by the pain at this point. So eventually, uh, Griffin shows up. Um, breaks them out. They uh, He breaks out uh, Robin. They look for uh, Vitoire and eventually found her. Um, and they are kind of escaping. They're like in the courtyard. Of the prison, as the but they're ultimately confronted by Sterling uh, and Griffin and Sterling uh, have a a fight, 
during which uh, Griffin ultimately dies. They both die, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they both shoot each they, other. They kill each other, yeah. It's kind of implied that uh, Evie's the, the cause of this rift. Right. Um, so uh, Robin and, and Vitar are left uh, to like try to figure out what's next. Um, everyone's gone. Uh, it's just them as far as they know. Um, they know about some like Hermes contacts, but they're like far away. There's, they're not going to be coming like to save them. Um, if anything, the organization's probably like in shambles at least the the local branch. Um, so they actually like decide to try a plan that Griffin had previously talked about, which was um, taking the tower, uh, like capturing it, and uh, conducting like a, a strike, basically, such that the like they would stop maintaining the bars around the country and like halt all activities within the tower until the parliament relented and uh, stopped the war efforts against China. And, and Griffin had originally like argued for this precisely because Babel is like a super centralized location where all the power is mm-hmm. and uh, it's filled by a bunch of scholars with no like uh, defense training. Uh, so it was super easy to take. Um, and they like actually do this. They go inside. They like take control of the tower by mostly intimidating the uh, scholars that are there. They give them the option of uh, you know going out uh, or staying. Uh, they kind of make a case for what's going on. They they explain the uh, plot that the professor and Herabs uh, were planning. To execute and and why this uh, what really motivated this war, um, and they are eventually able to like seal the tower and take control of it. Eventually, they um, realize that they can start kind of disassembling a big structure that's within the tower that had been previously mentioned in the novel, um, which acts kind of as a re- resonance rod, uh, which kind of remotely powers uh, bars that are located far away and makes them like last longer uh, but by starting to disassemble these uh, like rods structures um, the the bars start powering down and like rapidly deteriorate so all of the infrastructure within the country uh, that like relied on bars also starts to break down uh, and that includes like roads uh, lights, uh, public services, uh, and such. So they like start escalating uh, because the parliament, uh, with which they're trying to communicate, um, is either not responding at all or providing very terse responses in the li- like in the line of just stop uh, and return the uh, return the tower to its normal operations. I think at some point they are offered a pardon, uh, but it's, uh, you know, obviously not going to sway them, uh, and it's pretty much obviously a, you know, a, a false gambit. Um, they gain some allies 
uh, outside of the tower uh, in the form of, I think these were mill workers. Basically, yeah. yeah, these were basically Luddites, right? They were workers who were protesting had... the Industrial Revolution, the uh, Industrial Revolution early on in the book. Yes, because they were um, like the real Industrial Revolution. They were put out of work by by the advancements from silver. And at the beginning right. of the book, and... like Robin hated them because he was didn't know anything. Yeah, they they kind of treated him as another kind of noble within the tower. Um, so they, you know, they, they kind of had a breakdown in like class consciousness there. Uh, <laughs> but they quickly realized that they have very uh, mutual goals. They start working together. They are able to provide like for food uh, for people in the tower because they had no like reliable way of coming up with food. Um, I think they are also able to like get a hold of um, basically cushions so they can sleep and other facilities. Um, they also, the these other like protesters uh, kind of create barricades around the town as it seems uh, like the army is going to encroach upon mm -hmm. the town, trying to like make a push towards the tower. Um, and they are able to like hold them off for a while. Um, there's a big schism that occurs within the like, group that's uh, controlling the tower as they realize that the Westminster Bridge, uh, which is one of the like most important bridges in London, uh, depends on like bar maintenance to yeah. I think uh, they mentioned that the the professor was supposed to. Uh or had an appointment like earlier that yes. month to uh, go take a look at it, which obviously yeah. didn't, Ma didn't make. Yeah. Ma make sure it would like stand and not collapse entirely into the water. Um, and they, yeah, they, they have a schism uh, among the group uh, between those that kind of uh, lean towards using that as leverage and removing the rod so that it would collapse even faster. And, uh, the others think I did. Uh, is is there? There's not a lot of them, but uh, at least one of the like previously most prominent professors that was supporting them. This is kind of like the breaking point for them, and they do end up exiting tower uh, as a result because the group as a whole votes for letting the bridge collapse. Yeah, I did want to talk a little bit of sort of about the, I guess, different views of. Uh... Yeah. revolution because in a sense you sort of have um you know anthony and griffin on two very different sides anthony was very much like we'll write pamphlets we'll get the people involved you know we can protest you know and griffin definitely went a more radicalized um route and you can sort of see the the two of them in reflected in their mentors like uh, anthony was a very big person to uh, victor um, and she is on this, you know, more hesitant, I think, to take that violent approach where I think at this point, Robin has just gotten more and more willing to take that violent uh, route to make that change, if that's what it's going to take. Um, so I think it's sort of interesting to see both of those mindsets reflected in, you know, the people they, they've mentored and, and made an impact on, you know, even though they're no longer you know, actively, like, alive in the, the story. 
Yeah, I, I do think it's very uh, effective how the book portrays this alternate position, which is more about, you know, let's... It, it's very much the defeat the them from the inside kind of approach where uh, people think they can, like, uh, have an effect on Empire by working within its perception of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, peace and... Uh, harmonious uh, interactions uh, when it stacks the cards against those who oppose it in such a way that it's just not going to happen. You're just either ending up being uh, absolutely ineffectual, like something that's being to be mocked, or co-opted to a degree where your movement's not going to make a dent. Um, and there's a lot of like comparisons here uh, made with the uh, women suffragists uh, movement, uh, which has also kind of like been co-opted at some point. They mentioned them as potential allies, but it's they realize that they wouldn't go along with like the um, ideology that they're truly trying to push. Like they have already kind of been co-opted by uh, the uh, imperial project, um, and and same for many of the like achievements that supposedly have been reached uh, in uh, colonial. Uh, like in colonies so yeah like the the book i think makes an excellent case for like the necessity of violence as its subtitle uh suggests i i think uh it you know it, it supports its uh thesis um in the end and it makes a like it makes an effort to portray uh opposing views uh i think fairly um through several uh characters that range from being like ultra naive like Letty to like more I think it's a still like very uh, paradoxical kind of paradoxical mm -hmm. point of view but still like uh, compromises that people make in their minds so they can live within the empire and think of themselves as good people while f being fully aware of what it uh, it is um, there's a but yeah. There's a quote around this time that really stuck out to me that uh, Victor says. Um, basically, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but uh, she says, "Loving Letty was an exercise of hope," mm -hmm. and and that just really sort of stuck out to me. You know, hoping for the best for this this friend that, in a lot of ways, was genuine, did mean it, um, but was just ultimately just very misguided or almost unwilling to see the the bigger picture yeah i i do think they meant it and that's the tragedy of it right um because letty was making an effort it was just uh, a step too far for her to like oppose the ways in which she had uh conceived of the place she was born and the intentions of her peers uh who you know, for the most part, hadn't uh, othered her and uh, had embraced her, and especially because of her background mm -hmm. with her brother, who we haven't mentioned and uh, of which we haven't talked much. Um, he kind of sees her life as already kind of like a victory in itself and is content with that, like carving out a place in the world for herself and no one else. Um, and I... 
I can't blame her exactly. Um, but yeah, when when push comes to shove, she's just not ready to take that step towards like fighting for collective good uh, rather than just her, uh, you know, privileged place that, that she was able to attain for herself. And yeah, that's that's where the the tragedy of her f- uh, friendship with Victor mm-hmm. comes from. Uh, you know, just her trying to reach across that gap of like ignorance and understanding and uh yeah it, it's it's kind of sad it's it's uh kind of heart-wrenching so after the the collapse of westminster bridge um we we have to assume that a lot of people died even though they gave the warning and uh, tried to make sure as many people knew about the impending collapse as possible um Letty actually arrives with the uh army or uh kind of comes as an envoy from the army letting them know uh one final ultimatum uh that they're going to raid the tower uh basically by dawn if uh they didn't surrender before and she's still kind of spouting the same uh talk about the, them like being able to uh ask for a pardon of some sort or something like that. Um, she still and, wants it uh, to uh, work out and like have this sort of fantasized happy ending in her mind. Yeah. It's still possible. She, she is still convinced that, that there's a way towards that, right? Um, but uh, this is where Robin, who's like spiraling at this point because the disease, while not entirely ineffective or at least they've made their point and have harmed the uh country possibly enough to like uh escape them off war for a while um realizes uh he has no way out but uh to actually destroy the tower to really make a statement and damage the the power that um the the empire has so they basically make a suicide pact. Uh, they know not many of them are going to make it out alive, uh, if any. Um, yeah, I think then they, they make the yeah. they sort of open it up to anyone who does want to leave. You know, if you want to leave right. now is now now is the time. You know, because um, there's no going back from this. This is sort of where this whole thing's gonna gonna end and. Yes. Victor and one of the other students, I believe, one of the younger students, one of the underclass classmen, mm-hmm. um, are the only two to, to choose to leave. Yep. So um, Robin actually uses the uh, bar we previously mentioned about uh, the, the one that had translation as one of its words um, that's like extra volatile and like G said basically uses it as a nuke um, to destroy the center of the tower while the others are like in other strategic positions uh, doing the same thing. And it, it collapses uh, with them in, inside, um, basically crippling the Empire's capability uh, for silver working and, um, you know, hopefully staving them off for enough time to like uh, help the uh, countries that or the, the the places that were being part of their colonial efforts 
Um, and I think the last thing we see is um, Victor escaping, I think, uh, with the plan to go to America. Yeah, I believe she does go to America. I sort of love the the quote the, the book ends on because um, it really sort of, you know, makes you think, you know, is, is real change possible? And, you know, even she, after mm. living through all of this, is still undecided. Um, so the, 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 and if you don't mind, I'll just read the, the last quote of the book, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it ends, um, basically, um, I believe it's translated from Creole. Um, but she basically, um, when asked if she, she believes that real change is possible when she's first uh, recruited by Anthony, um, her reply is ask me a little later and I'll tell you. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I was referring to this earlier, but I, um, think, uh, one of the most effective aspects of the VARS concept is precisely like providing the grounds for such a uh, self-contained uh, revolution that could be pulled off with like mm -hmm. a relatively low amount of people. Um, so it's it's fascinating to me and like sad uh, that. Um, even though they had like the cards stacked in their favor uh, with having them having control of like basically a a SimCity UI where they could <laughs> like destroy and pull apart uh, the country's infrastructures uh, piece by piece as they wished, um, they were still able not able to like gain the leverage that was needed for Parliament to make a definitive statement. Like they couldn't. Uh, bring them to their knees um, and it is pointed out that in fact many of the people that were suffering at the time were like the you know just workers and yeah. uh, people who are already suffering population. yeah yeah people that were already suffering under conditions of like capitalism and um, you know just being uh, subjects of empire as well even if they were like the privileged uh, part of the uh the empire side of things um and, and while they were like on their vacation homes like waiting it out uh so it, it's all it's all very dispiriting um but i think it's not as naive as if the, you know the the book had ended with them just buckling and uh relenting on their uh, ambitions so even though the um book stacks the, the cards in their favor uh, it's still very, um, you know, not optimistic or realistic enough to like. It's um, it's uncertain not, for that not to be enough. Yeah, to to leave it as uncertain as it could be. Um, I think like it. Oh, I was just gonna say, I think uh, it rings a little truer that way. I think maybe that's sort of what you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with it being yeah, yeah. uncertain versus you know this really unrealistic you know happy ending you know where the empire you know realizes you know gosh darn it you know really should just uh back down and you know change everything so i think i think it sort of completes uh the parallels uh the author you know she's trying to convey you know with the real world experience where it's like it, it's really hard to say you know what makes lasting impactful change yeah and actually one of the questions we got um, thank you for sending in questions, by the way, um, was whether we thought the end message of the book was grim or hopeful. 
Um, and I, I think it's a little bit of both, right? It's bittersweet. Like bittersweet, yeah. It's like the anti-colonial project goes on. Um, there are small victories. Um, many of the efforts are going to fail or will be co-opted by the empire and absorbed. Um, but, you know, it's it's a enterprise worth pursuing. Um, yeah, and, you, you, I think... Yeah. Um, I'll go ahead, um, can, can, could you we need that thought finished first or am I interrupting no, no I was pretty much done um, yeah I was gonna say it's it's very much about like convincing people that it is not enough to work within the confines of the empire's rules to defeat it like it is self-perpetuating uh, for a reason it's engineered in such a way that you're not going to get at the real like crux of uh, what makes it oppressive and destructive and uh, you know all consuming uh, if you're not willing to like really wound it um, and like the material aspects of of it will necessarily you know be associated with human suffering like there is no way about like around it to me. Mm. I think here is where Victoire diverges from Anthony's mentorship. Like Anthony believed that they could make change, like they could make the empire uh, submit. But here she mm-hmm. she directly grows away from him. Like 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 this whole lead up to the last quote. You know, like like it, it it lays out the the position of the book. And like the quote right before when she gives final Creole quote, she says, she knows only that she will fu- that she will be in it, uh, the fight against the empire. At every unpredictable turn, will fight until her dying breath. And the, conf- the, conf- the ideological difference between um, Letty and Victor, like, um, is most evident here because when they part for the last time, Letty and Victor and uh, Robin. Victor says to to Letty, Letty, we would have died for you. And Letty doesn't respond to this at all. There's that there's that uh, step too far that you were mentioning also. Like she cannot conceive of self-sacrifice, whereas Robin could and the rest of them could as well, but Victor only got away because of they needed her to get away to be to, to carry on their mission. And like the last words that yeah. Robin says to Victor is be selfish, like Letty, like Letty was, but he counter he offsets that with be brave, and that 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 also informs you know the the, the mission that Victor has, mm. the, the resolve that she has, uh, at the very end of the book, the epilogue. Yeah, I I do do think it's interesting. Like I I would be interested in knowing whether you either of you kind of thought the pamphlet thing would work at any point. Like, I, I think at some point before the turn, right, before the police raid and everything, um, I, I wouldn't blame anyone. Uh, and I might have been fooled at some point about, like, this book going on that direction. Like, we're going to end on, like, the before Vendetta final scene where everyone's, like, on a protest in front of the parliament um, demanding that the war not proceed. Um, but it's such a naive view, right? And 
we it's kind of really well illustrated in the book by virtue of us going all the way to like the collapse of the Westminster Bridge and like the very visceral description of the misery through which the empire is pretty much subjected after like the decay of the infrastructure like it's allowed to proceed by the parliament and the uh, you know state officials as a whole um so it's interesting to go on that journey i think because it does kind of pull you th through as a reader uh on that journey like from the naivety of yeah maybe pamphlets will work let's use this um var that like spreads them around and makes sure it gets on people's hands right it's it's all about spreading a message all the way to uh no the only way to like um actually have an impact here is going to be sacrificing our lives to wound uh the the emperor materially um I did any of you think like that that was a direction that the book could go in I have thoughts about this, but if Saul does too, she can go ahead. Uh, I think I I didn't necessarily think it would direction the book would go in. I thought it was like a nice dream, like a nice idea. Um, mm. I think there was just so much set up for like the tower, you know, has to come down. Like this is central to the rot and, you know, right. the corruption that is going on and, you know, the power or, you know, what's keeping those in power, you know, staying, you know, keeping them in power, you know, above everyone else. So I think because the tower itself was such a metaphor, I, 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 you know, and they did set it up early, um, you know, sort of with, you know, the, the you know, don't translate the translation. Um, so I kind of was expecting that sort of to be the, the battleground. Um, mm -hmm. I guess it, it sort of would be have been nice to see maybe the the public take notice or the the public really you know uh come together you know for this movement and show they're ready for for change but i think as i was reading the book i i don't know if that would have been realistic with like the world you know she's trying to reflect and you know and she's trying to uh portray um so you know yeah i ultimately you know thought wasn't exactly sure how, but I, I did think it was going to be sort of a a, a doomed, right? Doomed plan. Um, even though Anthony, well, you know, was really optimistic that it would work. Yeah, he he was really convinced it it was the way to like victory. Um, yeah, like uh, the 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 development of how Hermes was going to use a pamphlet to plan, like the even like the cool hideout that they had that's that's all cool right it's all comfortable it's like pamphlets pamphlets are seductive like the, the the option to not be to not need to use violence is seductive like it's mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's so like we don't have to put ourselves materially on the line for for something like this mm. as much as right. the option of violence but in a like I mean, I'm thinking of revolutions in the past, like nonviolent revolutions in the 20th century, where they did succeed. But in this, in this, in 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 this milieu, like in this century in particular, like, I mean, I mean, I'm, I mean, apart from how the book sets it up, I I I, I am drawing from my own history, 
like my own country's history, because at first, our own revolution against the Spanish was uh, like the, the turning one of the turning points, apart from uh, several martyr martyrs and public executions. Was this was this pair of books like talking like uh, talking about how like uh, fictional but you know fictionalized books about the Spanish occupation and and these direct and these didn't work and the person who wrote them are our national hero uh, he was executed and then after that um then the violent revolution came uh spearheaded by workers and farmers so i think in this when in a colonial project like this where the empire is overwhelmingly powerful like uh, violence would be inevitable. I mean, you were talking just earlier about how here in this book, you know, the deck is stacked towards them, but in the in and even that didn't work, and that and their yeah. violence here wasn't even. It was indirect. I mean, it was all, yeah. It, all the it violence was, was ripple levers, effects, basically, like ripple effects of yes, yeah, of, of their actions. So. In the real world, it's it, it would never, and in against against this kind of hegemony, the pamphlets were never the final solution. Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's a very good point you said about like violence in this uh, scenario being like really abstracted because from their perspective they're like pulling on levers or removing yeah. these rods and then. Um, hearing about the effects uh basically secondhand or from like second news sources while they're not really being confronted with like having to pull the t the trigger and yeah. being directly confronted with the material results of their efforts so that's also yet another way in which uh you know this dilemma is being kind of simplified um mm -hmm. in the book um we have another question um which is, uh, there's there's an observation here about how at some point in the novel, the telegraph is introduced and it is described as a machine that does not require any silver working to, to work. Um, so the, the person who asks this says uh, whether it is, whether it was really necessary or if it was kind of pointless to have a fantastic element um, in, in what seems to be more like an alt history novel, if the end result is kind of the same world we live in. Um, and I think we've referred to this already, uh, but I just wanted to like um, restate the question and um, give my personal opinion, which is this, I, I actually think the choice of introducing silver working to the work is very clever as it serves uh, more than a handful of uh, purposes in the sense that it shows, again, um, the uh, impact uh, the colonial project has on immaterial resources. Um, it also very conveniently like allows for the entire third act. I don't know what it, this would look like if this was an actual history book and the uh, or uh, kind of his, purely a historical novel and the author had to figure out how to build a an effective um, revolutionary movement against. Um, the British in the uh, same like length 
that it does in this book uh, with the convenience that the the power is so centralized um, so I, I do think that it was necessary not so much as a fantastical element but as a like literary device that would allow for the entirety of the third act uh, uh, I don't know if either of you have anything to add I, I, I do um, I think the introduction of the telegraph in particular i think is in the context in the context of the book where silver working is yeah as we've talked about and you reminded us that silver working is the main uh, source of power in this world but here i think the telegraph and, oh, and the power of the british empire in particular but i think the telegraph here was invented by the united by an american I mean, even in the real world. Yes. Um, and that, re in this book, represents another challenge to the British hegemony. I mean, it's not just silver working that is the, the vehicle of empire. Here we have information, which is, you know, the empire we have now. Um, and it's, and it's, here it's a portent of, you know, American power. Uh, and which in the real world also dismantled British power by replacing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do think it's um, interesting as an acknowledgement of like the uh, kind of existence of America in this yeah. old history, even if you know it, uh, you could kind of figure that it was there kind of looming in the background. Um, would either of you be interested in, in a sequel? Do you think this uh like the 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 uh, final scenes are kind of sequel bait um i was or, or do you think yeah i was this, this is going to develop stuff as a standalone i was thinking about that as we were sort of getting to the or as i was sort of getting to the end of the the novel um how i would feel about a, a sequel um i mean I, I definitely think it would be possible um but i think for me personally i think it would uh take away from some of like the the impact just just having it be a standalone mm. i definitely think you could do more like maybe in the world or maybe you know talk more you know about sort of the the metaphor of, of translating um and that kind those kinds of themes but yeah I, I don't know if 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 i personally need a sequel i think it, it definitely um you know was was complete for me in reading it yeah uh, I do agree. It like stands on its own. Um, yeah, I, like I think the that like personally speaks to how I ultimately feel about the ending, right? I I don't think like we need another book to offset the like disappointment, quote unquote. Yeah, um, yeah. I also I, I I also agree with both of you. Like it does, it does all of those things. But I mean, when the question was raised, I was, and because of our discussion, I was also, you know, contemplating, I mean, I, I wouldn't want a sequel, but I was contemplating what a sequel would be like. Um, because Victoire is a black woman going to the United States in the mid 1800s and what happened in the United States, what was happening in the United States in this period and combining what we just talked about with America's power and the telegraph, like how you know the the power of language how the power of silver work like the under not silver working literally but the underlying power of translation and how it can be material 
materialize, how that would work in a proto-information age amid everything that... Yeah, I, I personally think... I I don't know how I would feel about a book that's like... And now Vitor is going to take on America. Right? Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. Like, and like, I'm not sure about just sort of brainstorming. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about Arif Quang's current ability to do to pull that off. Like, t- tackle uh, mm-hmm. Black Revolution in in the United States, because like her experience culturally with Chinese coloni- colonization of China by Britain. Um, is 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 valid, uh, of course. But I mean, throughout reading the book, and even in Poppy War, uh, I was thinking throughout my mind the entire time is how China itself is uh, a hegemony now. Like my country mm-hmm. and other countries in particular are um, heavily influenced by China's soft and hard power. Um, uh, South China Sea. Um, issue is heavily in the mind as well as China's uh, political influence and economic influence and I mean there's no there's no answer there's no answer because you have to decide between the United States which I I, I talked about personally and China so I I don't I yeah trust (laughs) I trust that uh, uh, Quang I mean her her own blind spots are evident but i mean she she top going yeah the car taking on america would be very outside her lane yeah i think that's very fair um i have some like last remarks here um first of all this book is like has been described as a response to um i think it's called uh what's it called it's um Professor Strange and Mr. Norrell, she's another like very well known book. I've heard of it, but I I haven't uh, read it. I, I've actually read one of the other books by the same author, which is Piranesi, which I really enjoyed. Um, uh, yeah, it's I, I'm curious uh, about the ways in which it's a response, and if it actually is a work that is kind of. Uh, in relation to that one, uh, so I, I I will be probably adding that one to my list sooner or later. Uh, I'm I'm curious about the relationship there, um, and yeah, I I think that's about it for for me in terms of like the content I had ready for this episode. Um, do we do we want to go like around the table and give our final thoughts on on the book? Yeah, I just I sort of wanted to sort of. Um... I guess summarize uh, summarize my thoughts. Um, I think I, I mentioned earlier. Um, I know you were saying like uh, before we start we, when we picked this novel, uh, Sergio, that it was this was definitely, I think, a novel a little bit more in your wheelhouse. Um, I'm not a huge reader of like alternative fi- like history. Um, not something that really interests me. So, you know, I was a little hesitant going in. I really expected it to be just a very, like I said, very dry, unrelatable uh, book. Um, I, I wasn't really expecting a lot. Um, and, you know, I think I was just sort of, I, I think I was just sort of almost overwhelmed, I want to say, just how well it conveyed some of my own thoughts. Um 
as a person of color of how there are moments where, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about how I personally am like translated or translating myself uh, to better fit into society. Um, And Mm. I I think it's, it's, if, if you've been in that situation, it's definitely like a deep rooted feeling. And I think it was just very invocative, very, I think I said earlier, very visceral reaction to reading someone describing something I've done without necessarily having the the words or even maybe the conscious thought that I was doing it. But I'm like, oh, you know, I'm doing exactly what, you know, Robin's doing, you know, I'm doing exactly what all these characters are doing to, to, to you know, fit in with uh, society. Because it's, you know, it's, it's, ultimately sort of a book about, you know, how do we make these changes in, in a society that, you know, doesn't really want to include you, um, but, you know, still still does use you, still wants to use you for all you can offer it. Um, so I can definitely see why, and I think in, maybe in our, our book club, it was a little bit of a decisive, divisive book, um, just, but for me, it, it, it really truly described so much of me to me and i guess it's sort of uh my sort of uh, i guess final feelings on on the book which is why you know i i don't need a don't need a sequel i i think it really did a it was very eloquent and very you know a beautiful portrayal of that and i think going into it it wasn't something i knew i needed to read um but i'm so so happy that i i did and i i read something a little outside of my normal genre and discovered something that really spoke to me personally. Yeah. Um, how about uh, Yuji? Do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I agree with everything that Saul said, like, yeah, uh, everything, every, like pretty much everything. <laughs> um, because yeah, actually literally, literally everything. Uh, when we chose this book for a book, I mean, yeah, right. So for listeners who aren't part of our book club, we, we vote on books. And um, I was choosing between... I I I wanted to continue on with Earthsea at the, uh, at the, before reading the list. But I saw this book. I saw the uh, blurb given. Saw that it was... Uh, yeah, from the title alone, like the extended title. It's very intriguing. Um, but I had no idea what it was about. But I did see it was R.F. Quang, and it it looked like it was dealing with you know, uh, British Empire and colonialism. So I I chose it. I waited it. I waited it um, as heavily as equally as my vote for uh, hmm. the third Earthsea book. And yeah, um, from from the moment that it talks about upbringing, uh, colonial upbringing. I was hooked because uh, I mentioned in our first episode that, yeah, I, I, I was I was born here, but I moved to the United States when I was six, and I stayed there until the end of until the middle of middle school. Um, so I was raised in a very multicultural um, environment. Uh, my my cohort was very much like this, like this cohort that Robin had, black brown mm-hmm. people, and we lived on the edge of. We lived on the edge of, um, quote unquote, 
uh, the ghetto. Um, and um, so the, the United States I knew was a naive one where, ki where kind of like our multiculturalism was an asset. And I was too young to really understand uh, racism or how it was used against uh, yeah because i was too, yeah i was too young it was very it, it, it was either ignorance or naivety that black, that didn't inform me of it and my friends were my friends and it wasn't really something that was discussed at an age like that and then when i came back home it was very difficult for me because i mean this is something common to many people uh, to either uh, first generation immigrants or yeah, the people who went through the same situation were immigrants then went home. But in the Philippines in particular, it's because of this prolonged history, 300 to 400 years of colonization. And the the you know, the Americans really did impart their Anglo-Saxon values in every sense in us. And so Filipino culture, it still has very like soft colonization mm -hmm. by the United States where uh, the American Anglo-Saxon ideal is the ideal, um, even now. Like that is the dream, you know. The Filipino dream is to go to America, you know, um, and be one of them. And this is, you know, something talked about in Filipino American and migrant communities and Black communities as well, like assimilating. Um, so when, and this is something I've worked through, and you know, I, I formed my own identity. Funnily enough, by yeah, reading others uh, like-minded people, like Black literature is very, very embedded in this uh, this question because we have so. And Saul was talking also about how our book club was very conflicted about this book, and there was a. I mean, I didn't read the actual discussion, but in the umbrella chat, people were asking like, when does uh, when does the book gets? Uh, when does the book get good? And I guess for people who, well, I, I'm not actually sure who this answer is for because we've just talked about the entire book. But if you never read it and are interested, um, the question of when this is good or not, or when it hooks you, depends on whether you are multilingual yourself and or part of a culture dealing with the trauma of colonization. Um, or if you're a better lady. Yeah, uh, I I think it's interesting. I during the like first half of the book, I did think this was kind of a um, to put it bluntly, I th I thought this was kind of an excuse for RF Kuang to like pour on a fictional framework um, the like again. Uh, post anti-colonial readings uh, they have done uh, because it tends to really go hard in the like exposition and uh, like the dry representation mm. of like very well made and like um, you know There's well constructed metaphors for uh, empire and uh, thoughts uh, and it will do so like maybe Robin will start thinking about uh, Empire or Griefing will start like uh, expositing to, to Robin about 
his ideology uh, in the face of like what Robin's doing, collaborating with Babel, um, which makes it kind of like a stealth uh, theory book in my eyes at times. Um, yeah, I think that's when, fair. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting how up until like we get to Robin killing the professor and then it kind of kicks into high year, um, we end up with a book that's very much about a group of friends um, that live within the framework that the book is uh, you know, interested in talking about um, and does so very explicitly throughout their uh, like inner monologues and uh, dialogue um, in a way that I could see people uh, reading as dry or reading as you know kind of forced mm -hmm. to to be like heavy-handed in terms of like what the author wants to say um mm. which i i do think i can see where people are coming from when they when they say that and i do like if you look at the goodreads reviews for example there's a lot of people saying uh like this book has no subtlety it's uh, super heavy-handed um <laughs> it doesn't know about um you know subtext or things like that um sometimes it rules when a book has no subtext and it just uh, comes out swinging and i i think this is like an example of that we had previously read actually another uh book by ursula k Le Guin, which is uh the word for world is forest which is also very much about like colonialism and empire um and it reads like Throughout the entire book, without going into details, it reads like it's a, a book that was written with like anger. Um like like Le Guin was angry all throughout the process of writing it. And this feels like the book uh like I I would write like right after reading uh through like anti-colonial theory, after reading like the wretched of the earth and if I was a like an, an actual competent writer, um, and if I wanted to like put all of those things I've learned on like a narrative framework, um, yeah, like that's that's how it comes across to me. Like a vehicle to deliver uh, theory that's like very effective, and it's theory that I largely agree with. Um, but I do see kind of like the. Um, you know, this this is kind of slow. It, it's kind of very deliberate in what it's saying. It it tends to go into like tangents or things that would seem like tangents because it's um, you know very expository and it's littered with like uh, footnotes, uh, which which didn't mention. But there's a lot of oh, footnotes yeah. that refer to texts uh, that I of which the majority I think is actual like quotes from actual documents um yeah so yeah i like the the book is very clear about what it's doing and uh yeah if, if you're not like hooked from that um like premise and you're coming here for a fun fantasy book there's been a lot of like recent fantasy books that deal with themes of empire and and col colonialism um like i love a memory called empire uh, and its sequel, uh, the book I'm reading now, uh, Ancillary Sword, 
Um, uh, like there's been a lot yeah. of those. I was just reading recently about the sequel to She Who Became the Sun, um, which is kind of also a like revolutionary uh, a book with revolutionary themes. Uh, but this is kind of something else, right? This is um, not playing with the themes necessarily, but like uh, putting them on the table in a way that not uh, that these other books don't. Yeah, the strength of speculative fiction, science fiction, fantasies, the metaphor, like, you know, mm -hmm. you're, you're, hi you're hiding a truth about the world in your fiction. But here, no, <laughs> sometimes even the book itself in its... Yeah, sometimes you need to be like hit over the head with theory. Pamphlets, <laughs> pamphlets versus... Yeah, um, so I, I think that's it for our uh, discussion. We've gone for nearly three hours i'm really proud of this episode i'm really happy with how it turned out um so thank you once again uh g for being here and uh sol as well uh for providing extra commentary especially for correcting me uh, because i i feel like i messed up a couple of times there with the summary um but i, I had a really great time um so next time we are talking about um the first three books in the Murderbot Diaries series by uh, Martha Wells. Um, these are uh, All Systems Red, Artificial Condition, and Rogue Protocol. Um, and we're reading three of them because these are novellas. Uh, these are like very short uh, stories. I don't think there would be um, enough content in one of them to like uh, feel an episode even if it was as half as long as this one uh, because they are really really short um, so we will see how that goes um, uh, if you only want to read one of them uh, make it the first one uh, I think my favorite in the series might be the third one so I would recommend that you go all the way and read all three um, but if not uh, you know just dip your toes and, uh, into the into the pool that is Murderbot and figure out if it's something uh, for you. Um, and with that, uh, I think that's going to be it. Um, so thank you once again uh, to you for being here. Yeah, it was, uh, was a lot of fun. Thanks Great having you again. Uh, G really enjoyed uh, being able to continue some of our, our Earthsea discussion and sort of... Uh, bridge into this episode so definitely uh yeah some some really nice parallels there for sure yeah definitely um i'm glad this is the one we yeah chose. same <laughs> all right then um remember you can contact us at um a stray reads podcast at gmail.com uh be sure to send in uh questions or comments uh also be sure to follow us on twitter uh we are at stray reads pod um all, all uh, a single word. Um, we'll be posting uh, quotes from the uh, episode, and we'll also uh, be announcing uh, our next recording date, so you can be sure to send your questions and comments uh, before then. Um, that's it. Uh, read on. <laughs> <laughs>